very word secrecy is repugnant in a free and open society. And we are, as a people, inherently and historically opposed to secret societies, to secret oaths, and to secret proceedings. questions you always had, the answers you were never given, the place to seek the truth. Welcome to Veritas. Greetings to everyone around the world and a warm welcome to another edition of Veritas at VeritasRadio.com. I'm your host, Mal Fabregas, and I sincerely thank you for joining me once again. And if this is your first time, or your truth journey brought you here, welcome home. And after so many years, you know what to do by now if you want to listen to tonight's full program and every single program we've created from day one. Just go to our website and click on subscribe. Believe me, you won't regret it. And you will also regret to give your life an upgrade. And to do so, just go to sanitasradio.com and take a listen. You won't be the same person, I guarantee it. And if you want to get in touch with me, so any suggestion for a guest, feedback, you want to be a guest on this radio program, I'd love to hear from you. Just go to our website and click on the contact button. And don't forget to like us on Facebook. Much like the Gnostics, Black Freemasons were a secret society within a secret society, and they certainly not only shaped black culture, but American culture as well. Or maybe they weren't so secretive with such members as Louis Armstrong, Duke Ellington, Nat King Cole, Yubi Blake, Cap Calloway, Paul Robeson, just to name a few. Just like the Gnostics, the African Americans in early American history realized we lived in a false reality controlled by oppressive powers and principalities that exploited our divine spark. And to tell us more about Black Freemasonry, tonight's special guest is Professor Cecile Reveger, a respected historian of Freemasonry and a professor at the University of Bordeaux. She is the author of several books on Freemasonry, including the latest one titled Black Freemasonry, From Prince Hall to the Giants of Jazz. Even though she lives in Bordeaux, southern France, she joins us from the beautiful island of Martinique, not too far away from where I grew up in the Caribbean. Hello, Professor Reverger, and welcome to Veritas. Thanks for joining us. Hello, and thank you very much for inviting me. It's my pleasure. Well, first question I have, how did you come to write this book? Yes. Um, well, you know, it's quite a challenge because... Um, well, for many people, it's surprising, first of all, that a woman should write about Freemasonry. As a white know. European female academic writing exactly. a book about Freemasonry. <laughs> exactly. Um, well, in fact, I, I, I have, well, I, my PhD uh, covered um, British and American Freemasonry in the 18th century. And ever since, Herbergé. I've been working on Freemasonry. And as I as I lived in and worked uh, in Martinique for a while, I I really had an interest in Black Freemasonry, and uh, I realized how important Prince Hall Freemasonry was. In fact, uh, not in Martinique, but in in America and in the Caribbean, uh, in Barbados, for instance, or uh, Saint Lucia, or uh, you know. So that's how I started, actually. <laughs> and what you mentioned. At the beginning of your book, this might raise some eyebrows, a white European female academic writing a book about black Freemasons. But you've been writing about Freemasonry for quite some time. What motivated you to look into secret societies? Well, um, I, I, I was really interested in the link they had with society. That is to say, not secret societies for a secret society's sake, but trying to see how they impacted uh, the society of their time, how they reflected the ideas of their time, the kind of influence they could have 
Uh, and since I started in the 18th century, of course, I was most interested in the importance of um, Freemasonry during the American Revolution. The fact that George Washington, Paul Revere, Joseph Warren, all those patriots were Freemasons. So um, that's, you know, I realized that although they belonged to this secret society, uh, they really had an influence on the society of their time. And what, what I try to show, it's not because they have a sort of esoteric power or whatever, no, but simply that by joining those societies which are inspired by the ideas of tolerance, religious tolerance, um, freedom. They uh, wanted to have an impact on their society too. So you actually find a lot of major actors uh, of the American Revolution who were Freemasons. So that's an example, you see. Um, I also worked on the French Revolution and found that uh, again, there were Masons on both sides, you know, on the on the sides of the revolutionaries and of the anti-revolutionaries, actually. Um, so you, you cannot, of course, put labels, but um, what is there is the motivation to act on society one way or another, if you see what I mean. <laughs> certainly, certainly. Now let's talk about the birth of black Freemasonry. When All right. and well, how they- how did black Freemasonry begin? Well, in fact, they started about 1784. So the idea was that um, they, first of all, he was, he thought he was one man who was called Prince Hall, hence the name. Prince Hall was um, an emancipated slave, and he was a free black living in Boston at the end of the 18th century. And he actually, so there is a, well, what is not absolutely uh, sure is when he was actually made a Mason, because we have no evidence of that. So we think that it was in in an Irish military lodge, which was stationed near Boston. But what is sure is that he indeed became a Mason and that he wanted to fund his own lodge, which was called the African Lodge number, so the first African Lodge, in fact. And uh, he, so at the time, you know, you had to ask for a charter. And apparently Prince Hall had a good contact with Joseph Warren and he wanted, and he was promised this charter by charter by uh, Joseph Warren. But unfortunately, Joseph Warren died at the bank battle of Bunker Hill in 1775. And when he died, um, Prince Hall tried to connect with the, uh, the Masons of Massachusetts, but they wouldn't hear anything. So, He had the idea of applying for a charter to Britain, uh, to the Grand Lodge of England. So this shows, incidentally, that there were many links between uh, uh, American settlers, but also those emancipated blacks and some British people. And because he very easily secured a charter. When I say very easily, of course, you have to take into account the amount of time it took to travel in those days. So the charter was actually signed in 1784, but by the time it got to Boston, it was 1787. And of course, you can imagine that the British were more than pleased to grant a charter to black Freemasons when uh, the American Freemasons, whom well, refused them one, and of course, in the context of the war between Britain and America, uh, you know, Britain had the good role. <laughs> to antagonize the Americans. Yes, yes, absolutely. But anyway, this this um, this lodge started with a few men, and very soon they had an active role in the city because they began organizing petitions. So they even sent petitions to the Assembly of Massachusetts because in those days, you know, of course, um, there were a lot of free blacks, but we are in 1784, 87. And in 1788, for instance, they really sent this wonderful petition to the Assembly of Massachusetts uh, asking for the the end of slavery. And what happened also was that... um, well, a lot of captains would come near the Boston, well, in Boston Harbor, and they would attract those free blacks. 
and you know on their boats and tell them you know that they they would be paid lure them yes and then they would sail away with them and sell them back into slavery so this phenomenon was quite current apparently where and where would they find, sell them uh, throughout the caribbean for example uh, yes or uh, that's it in you know or uh, in in all sorts of uh, harbors where they they still actually bought slaves yes yeah? so it could be jamaica it could be uh, barbados it could be uh, uh, haiti before it was <laughs> before it became independent so before there was emancipation in certain locations once you sell them there they don't care yeah. that you're emancipated in the united states well that's it They didn't check, you know, they couldn't care less, you know, right. they, they, they bought them as any slaves. Uh, that's it. So, um, well, because, of course, in, in well, the, the, uh, Britain only put an end to the slave trade in 1807. So this was, you know, before that. Mm -hmm. And uh, so it was actually still possible to sell slaves. Uh, uh, I mean, uh, even though they were, con they had been emancipated because they had been manumitted, as as one said in those days in the north. Um, but of course, this was before the official abolition of slavery. So, the, and, uh, and 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 you you do find Prince Hall and his friends sending those petitions, and uh, and this petition was reproduced in the press. Actually, it was printed. Um, when they, they, you know, they asked the, the Boston Assembly to put an end to that practice. And also at another point, um, you find Prince all asking for a school for black children because, well, in those days, as you can imagine, they were, uh, uh, well, I mean, it was very difficult for um, black children to be segregation. accepted in schools. Okay, there was segregation, yeah. So I mean, obviously, what, what we what we find that uh, very very soon they tried to play a role, a social role, you see, for the integration of uh, black people in the American community. Well, the first question should have been, and I believe you already answered, but I'm curious. <laughs> someone must have made Prince Hall a mason. The question is, who? Why is it hard to find direct evidence? regarding this assignment, if you will. Yes. Well, you know, we are talking, we are discussing 1784, and as, as a general rule, it's very difficult to find precise archives uh, for that period, you see, um, because, uh, well, yes, you do, but the minutes are quite rare. Uh, you, you do not find them everywhere, and some of them have been lost. Some of them, um, so, uh, I mean, it's quite possible, simply, that the minutes of that military lodge um, have been lost. And so it's it's very difficult because during the time it's very difficult to find the the actual uh, record. But that would have been such a great information. Who, do, if you had to speculate, and I know as a professor you have to have evidence in order to speak on, on a subject. Mm -hmm. But if you had to speculate, who do you think was responsible for? making well, Prince Hall a mason? Most certainly one of those traveling lodges, either Irish or British, um, because in those days they were traveling lodges, that is to say military lodges, right, approaching the coast and um, accompanying soldiers. And so it was probably one of those. Because, But we, know, we, we do have evidence for the charter because the first charter has been kept. So it, it can be actually seen, the 1784 charter delivered by the Grand Lodge of England, right? And um, when, you go to, when you go to London in the Freemasonry Museum, uh, they do have uh, proceedings and they do have lists, and especially now they are um, having a special uh, database uh, to try and find out Uh, the greatest number of um, uh, dates, uh, initiation dates and everything. So, I mean, you, you, we have 
some evidence, but some is lacking. It's true that, uh, and then you cannot invent it, of course, but, um, well, that's the thing. <laughs> but, you know, um, this question, I mean, is it that important? Okay, we know, well, we can assume it was probably an Irish lodge, but what is really important for me is the fact that this man should have made his own lodge, should have started his own lodge, because, you know, a lot of American Masons, white Masons later on, said that this was not regular because they could not prove anything and also because uh, they, re you know, all this, uh, this, this uh, notion of regularity, I mean, is so subjective, really. This is what I want to say. Um, because obviously... Uh, those Masons acted as Masons, you know, they had, uh, and we, we, we have, um, uh, we have the proceedings of Prince Hall and um, uh, of that lodge and uh, some of the, um, the speeches which were delivered by Prince Hall to his lodge. We have that evidence, right? But, um, well, what we have to understand is that in 1723, James Anderson, who wrote the constitutions of Freemasonry, actually wrote that no bondman, no slave could be a Mason. When he wrote that, well, my feeling is that he wrote it in a sort of philosophical way, saying that you had a free, you had to be free. But because of that, generations of American Freemasons later on said and kept repeating that you had to be white because, or if not white, at least you could never be, well, you could not be black because a black man had originally been a slave. And that's what they kept repeating through the 19th century. Because they wouldn't expect blacks to be emancipated human beings at any time in the future. Sorry? So they said that, am I understanding right, that they said that you could not have a slave, but they never expected blacks to be free? Well, it was even worse than that, because um, they were, you know, they, they were what was called landmarks. Landmarks were sort of rules, right, constitutions, written by someone called Albert Mackey, and that was in the 19th century. And those landmarks kept repeating, that, just like Anderson, that you had to be Free-born, which meant that even if you were an emancipated black person, because you had been born in slavery, <laughs> you could not be made a Mason. Mm. And actually, the British changed that. The British changed that in 1847, and they actually rewrote the constitutions, and they changed the word free-born, right, by simply uh, replaced it by free. You have to be free men and not free born men, you see. So all this was very subtle. And, uh, well, I mean, you cannot deny that there was a lot of racism in the 19th century. And things changed, fortunately. Things changed. And uh, you had some white American Grand Lodges like uh, the Washington Grand Lodge or uh, the Grand Lodge of Massachusetts, um, which, you know, at the end of the 19th century and uh, in, uh, well, in also at the beginning of the 20th century, tried to change things. But you had to wait till 1987 for the first American Grand Lodge officially to recognize the first Prince Hall Grand Lodge. Hold, hold, hold there, because I like to go in chronological order, and that's something I want to discuss later. Why did it take so long until 1987 for this to happen? But let's go back in time still. Mm -hmm. How different is white from black Freemasonry all the way from the beginning? Not different at all. <laughs> this is it, you see. It's so similar because from the very beginning, well, I mean, the, the big difference is between uh, American Freemasonry on the one hand and European Freemasonry, uh, French Freemasonry, 
right? But and and this difference, okay, sorry, I again I, I have <laughs> to anticipate because this took place in eighteen in, in um, eighteen seventy seven, really the major split. But before that, you know, the Amer- American Freemasons really, in, well, uh, insisted that a Mason should be uh, tolerant from a religious point of view, but should believe in a supreme being. And this was exactly the case with black Freemasonry. They had exactly the same references, Anderson's constitutions. Uh, they also said, because that uh, on top of the slave, they were the women, that women could not be made Masons. They just said the same, exactly the same as white Masons. So they were, I mean, there were no differences at all. So well, even though blacks were oppressed, obviously, by slavery, they were not embracing of women to such as, you know, just like the American, the white American the Freemasonry? They, oh, exactly like them. No, no, they, they would not admit women. What is That's the main it. reason? Because right now we have women, but they're they're almost like uh, subjugated. They're an under underclass within Freemasonry, e- correct? Exactly. In America, that's the case. In, in Europe, it's not the case. But in America, it is the case. Well, again, originally, you have to go back to this dear James Anderson. At the time he was writing, in 1723, there were no women in the public sphere. There were no women in the British clubs either. So. And uh, so when he wrote that, that there they, they would be, there should be no woman or no bondman, that's the actual phrasing, um, well, this was quite, well, what shall I say, quite common, you know. But the problem is that, uh, well, you have to evolve with time. And uh, the Masons, a lot of Masons didn't. So, of course, now they have evolved, you see. But for a long time, they went on saying that you could not be, if you were a woman, you could not be made a mason. And things changed again in Europe, particularly in France, and when you had those lodges of adoption with women. But it was not the case in America, neither on the white side nor on the black side. I mean, women were excluded, right? So you really had to wait. Um, and even today in America, you know, of course, some Grand Lodges are more enlightened than others. When I think of the Grand Lodge of California, uh, they, although they do not uh, initiate women themselves, they have relationships with women's lodges, right? They do not consider that it is an awful thing to be an initiated woman. Um, but... Uh, the the official, I mean, uh, organization is the Eastern Star Association. And as you said, the Eastern Star Association are sort of um, sub-Freemasonry because they, are, they do not even consider themselves as Freemasons, right? They are they are there. They, well, in order to, have, to be a member of the Eastern Star, and that's the paradox, you have to be a relative of a Mason. You have to be either his wife or his mother or his daughter maybe daughter-in-law, whatever, but you have to have a relationship with a mason. And uh, you have to prove that parental link. But they are there to do the charity, to uh, help masons, you know, work in hospitals. And because uh, the masons, especially American masons, um, do a lot of charitable work and they patronize institutions. And so they they are there to do that, right? But they are not considered as full-fledged masons in America. And this hasn't changed. Except, as I say, that, you know, some Grand Lodges are now more ready to have links with um, women organizations. But no, absolutely no American Grand Lodge, uh, considered as regular Grand Lodge, will initiate a woman, whether black or white. This goes back to the patriarchal society, including organized religion, at least in the Western world, where you have mm-hmm. b- predominantly male figures. And even though Freemasonry doesn't consider itself religious, it behaves as such in this regard, doesn't it? Probably. Probably. You can say so. Um, well, again, of course, if you look at the Church of England, things have changed a little. But <laughs> <laughs> yes, right. 
but that's right, and that's right. I don't know. And um, um, well, but, but I mean, probably because again, when Anderson wrote this constitution, Anderson himself was a Presbyterian, and um, so of course he was influenced by the religious views of his time. Um, but of course, well, those are the, the bad sides, if you like. The good sides were that for the time, it was the Enlightenment period and it was, well, it was something to um, to really urge religious tolerance after all this was of religion. So that was the good point, of course, religious tolerance. But this tolerance had limits. <laughs> this is it. And in, uh, in particular, then regarding... Um, uh, admission of women or of um, former slaves. What was the main motivator for Prince Hall to begin Black Freemasonry? Was there a correlation between what later became the NA, the NAACP organization and Black Freemasonry? Absolutely. But, um, well, of course, at the time when Prince Hall, it's a very good question, but when Prince Hall launched Freemasonry, um, I think he had the idea to uh, make free blacks be accepted as respectable citizens, educated citizens, uh, to encourage them to uh, to work, to be, you know, to, to, to have, I mean, to act as citizens in Boston. And in Massachusetts, and later on, uh, indeed, the founder of the NAACP was Du Bois, and Du Bois was a Mason. He was made a Mason. He was a Prince Hall Freemason, and uh, even today, um, the Prince Hall Grand Lodges really fund the NAACP. I think they are the, the second purveyor of the NAACP, and um, uh, the links are very strong, yes. Uh, and they, they have tried to encourage the emancipation of, um, of black people, and they, they have been very involved in the NAACP, absolutely. What about the Tuskegee? Institute. Oh. I, 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 for yes. some reason, even though there may not be a correct, uh, a direct correlation, something tells me there's a relationship here between this and Tuskegee. Oh, absolutely. You're absolutely right. Because Booker T. Washington, who was also Prince Hall Freemason, now it's even more interesting because he was uh, originally was not a Prince Hall Freemason, but the Prince Hall Freemasons asked him to join because they considered that he was so representative of their ideas. And indeed, Booker T. Washington wrote Up From Slavery. He was an educator and he was the founder of Tuskegee. And he, uh, well, he encouraged the education of black people. And um, at one point, his institute was visited by President McKinley. And uh, uh, he, he was, oh, yes, he was um, uh, really, I mean, uh, very dedicated to the education of black people. At one point, there was even a slight debate, a slight, well, I mean, um, a difference between um, Booker T. Washington's approach and Du Bois and the, uh, Du Bois's approach, because um, Booker T. Washington said, you know, just like Tuskegee. Tuskegee, you say, yes, that it should be, I mean, what was important was to provide all those young black people with um, with a job, with a professional education. And then Du Bois said, oh, yes, but it's not enough. Uh, why should we insist on uh, this um, technical education, this, uh, you know, professional education? We, we have to send them to Harvard. We have to, to send them to big universities, right? And, well, I think it was just, I mean, basically they, they, they agree, but it was just a, a question of uh, getting their priorities right. And Booker T. Washington thought that after the, the you know, the um, really the emancipation of black people, the, 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 the priority was um, to make sure that the greatest number would have a job. Well, it seems but he that, was very active in Tuskegee. Yes. Sure, and it seems that the efforts of, of Black Freemasonry, Tuskegee, and other organizations, secret or not, were an effort to begin to equalize, to allow blacks to rise in society, to be considered 
as even, you know, a platform of high society for Freemasonry. Absolutely, absolutely. And, uh, well, even today, you must say that there are a lot of Prince Hall Freemasons who belong to the middle class and uh, who have tried, you know, to to work and uh, to work hard. And they have been also, um, well, uh, association, they have been even fraternal banks you know, set up by some Prince Hall Grand Lodges to lend some money to their members to make sure that they could start their own uh, enterprise and uh, their own business. And um, there has been a lot of uh, mutual aid like that. But the idea was really, yes, to encourage them to become uh, recognized American citizens and to have their, their, their role, their place in society. Um, there has been very little separatism, you see, if you see what I mean. Yes, they, um, they've not, well, very few, of course, there has been, there has been someone like Martin Delany, and Martin Delany at one point uh, tried to say that, um, well, maybe uh, black people uh, had better um, go to Liberia and uh, uh, settle there and be free there and that they would never make it to America so uh, and that they should you know they should remain separate but this this was not the majority of uh, by the way can you expand on that because this is a part of our history that is briefly mentioned by Samba but a lot of people don't know this there was an effort in the United States to of course create the, the nation of Liberia which mm -hmm. means to liberate, to send the, the emancipated blacks back to mm -hmm. Africa. Can you can you spend a couple of minutes explaining what happened there? Well, uh, actually, it's I, I mean from, from from what I know, it's um, it, it was a temptation to um, bring them all there so that they could be free. But at the same time, you see, it would um, it went against this this idea of uh, an American nation with uh, where all citizens could be admitted and could hope to become equal. Uh, so it was, uh, and of course, uh, it it works on both sides because I think uh, some black people like Delaney were actually convinced that. Perhaps that was the solution, um, but I'm not sure. I think you know it, it, all this is a bit ambiguous because at the same time you had those white masons or white people uh, who were well, who were quite pleased to see them go away. So it's um, uh, I think all this is very, very, very ambiguous. But at some point, it's true that there were some relationships also between the uh, the Grand Lodge of Liberia and the Prince Hall uh, Grand Lodge of New York. So, you know, they, they contemplated that possibility. Um, but, well, I think most Prince Hall Freemasons preferred to, uh, you know, to, to, to become full-fledged American citizens, while, of course, being recognized as black citizens, right? When I think of Louis Armstrong, a Cap Calloway, and all those back in the days when they became Freemasons, I can see one of the reasons why they became part, because again, the equalizing factor. But for some reason now, if there's, if there's a, a black Freemason, especially those who are 33 degrees or above, I'm looking at a list right here, they're considered sellouts. Why do you think that is? They considered, sorry? Sellouts. Basically, basically, they're selling their souls by becoming part of this organization. For example, I'm looking at Jesse Jackson. I'm looking yeah. at uh, Dr. Conrad Murray, the one who allegedly, by mistake, killed Michael Jackson. All uh -huh. these people. Uh, Al Shaptum, JC, a lot of the, the celebrities in the music industry are part of it. It's almost as if it's demonized. The uh -huh. to be part of this organization. Yeah, yeah. Well, okay. To start with, just just let me let me say that Louis Armstrong uh, was never proved to be a Mason, but his father was an uh, belonged to what was called the Odd Fellows, which was a friendly society um, where there were a lot of Masons, and Louis Armstrong himself 
was asked to play music for uh, Masonic funerals, right? So that's what we know about him. But the others were absolutely part of uh, Prince Hall Freemasonry, and there was about Duke Ellington, uh, Cap Calloway. Um, all right, I think those people anyway wanted, they belonged to the artistic world, they felt... Americans, and because, of course, they were jazzmen, uh, they were, well, they were recognized also as jazzmen, and they, I think they wouldn't have dreamt of, uh, uh, you know, separating and, or, uh, well, they, they wanted to be recognized as American artists. Um, now, so why, why should Freemasonry be demonized sometimes? Well, you know, some people um, called Freemasons Uncle Toms. Uh, they thought that they were too ready to compromise. Uh, that, well, when I, said, when I said sellout, that's really what I meant. Some yeah. people perceive him as Uncle Toms. <laughs> that's what I just understood after that. Yes. Okay. Yes. Well, that's it. Um, so it might, uh, you know, it's, it might still be the case. Yes. That, um, um, some, yes. So some uh, black people would consider, um, uh, Prince Hall Freemasons as, uh, Tom's, but I think nothing could be, well, it's, it's, it's of course totally wrong because they, uh, you know, uh, as I said, they have, even today, they insist on keeping their own identity. Of uh, um, uh, Sometimes American Grand Lodges now, a lot of them have evolved, by the way. But for a long time, they, they asked uh, black Freemasons to uh, actually claim recognition from the white Freemasons. And they, and, and they no longer want to do that. You know, they, they, they really want to be accepted as, uh, you Equals. know, as, equals and so equals why should equals have to ask for any kind of recognition so they have their dignity and they they have their, their you know their their identity well i suspect that those who are so hostile to freemasonry would be just as hostile to white uh, white or black freemasonry and today those who are really hostile to american freemasonry well, are, uh, you know, uh, people who are, uh, well, evangelists, but, well, in, uh, not the evangelists of the 19th century were abolitionists and who were <laughs> um, uh, committed to the abolition of slavery, but those today, okay, who uh, are most intolerant and who, well, only, you know, accept their own religion. So those, of course, would not like the ideas of Freemasonry because, well, Freemasonry is against all kind of dogma, right? All kind of religious dogma. And um, in America, as, as in Europe, well, in Europe, on top of that, we, Amer well, French uh, Freemasons, European Freemasons insist on the liberty of conscience, and uh, which means that atheists can be admitted. Uh, not so in America. So. I was going to say, I've had conversations with uh, 33rd degree Masons here in the United States, and they say that one of the requirements is that you have to believe in God. doesn't matter which religion, but you cannot be an atheist. Why the difference between European Freemasonry allowing it and not here? Why do you think? Well, actually, it all started in 1877, at the end of the 19th century, Um well, there had been the Paris Commune. The Paris Commune was, um, uh, well, sort of, um, what shall I call it, citizens' revolution in Paris. Well, it was, uh, and and a lot of, um, and some Masons supported uh, those ideas. But, well, that's one thing. But another thing was that there was a Protestant, uh, a Protestant priest called Desmond, who was absolutely fully committed to liberty of conscience and who insisted that the Grand Orient de France, which was the main French Grand Lodge at the time, should change its constitutions and replace the obligation to believe in the immortality of the soul and in God by the phrase full liberty of conscience. And when the Grand Orient de France did that, immediately the United Grand Lodge of England severed links with the Grand Orient de France. So, okay, and, the, and of course the, the American Freemasons towed the line. So my suspicion also is that 
there were political reasons, as I said, because um, Britain at the time, British Freemasonry was fully committed to the British Enlightenment, uh, British uh, establishment, sorry, with, um, uh, you know, really the uh, uh, the monarchy and, um, and uh, well, the elite. Uh, whereas in France, a lot of Masons, as I said, had supported those uh, revolutionary events in Paris and where some of them were committed to uh, uh, those very Republican ideas and uh, to liberty and liberty of conscience. And and, and I think the, 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 the British were... Uh, didn't like that at all, and uh, they they <laughs> so yes, there was the religious issue, but there was probably a political issue as well, right? So anyway, ever since ever since there has been this split between European Freemasonry and British and American Freemasonry, European Freemasonry in the wake of the Grand Orient de France. Well, of course, in Europe you have also some Grand Lodges which are recognized by the United Grand Lodge of England. So those, well, I'm not discussing those, but anyway, so those in the wake of the Grand Orient de France insist on liberty of conscience, whereas those uh, which are recognized by the United Grand Lodge of England and the American Grand, Lodge, uh, Grand Lodges, whether white or black, insist on the belief in God. Yes, so that's that's really a major difference. And, well, there are, well, I'm not sure there are evolutions. What happens is that, again, some Grand Lodges, like the Grand Lodge of California, will accept to discuss, uh, to invite European Grand Lodges. But, you know, there is still this fundamental difference between the two. Now, tell us about the first Black Grand Lodges and how was it when it began and what was their process of, can I say the word recruit? How did they solicit members? Oh, well, of course, it's a bit difficult to answer that question because um, it's it's the kind of evidence which is lacking, of course. But, well, what we know for sure is that um, we, we find, for instance, petitions. Well, petitions were letters written by individual members asking for a charter, applying for a charter. And we find a petition in 17, well, a little before 1797, written by some Masons in Pennsylvania to some Masons in Boston asking for a charter. And uh, at that time, the, the so Prince Hall uh, Lodge in Boston granted this charter to Pennsylvania. And we know that there were a lot of members of the churches, for instance, of the, um, it was called the African uh, Episco um, Methodist Episcopalian Church, right? Uh, so there was a church where this church was really uh, with uh, someone like uh, Absalom Jones who was there, right? And Absalom Jones was a member of the Philadelphia Lodge and uh, he was also, uh, well, deeply involved in that African Methodist Episcopal Church, right? Uh, and and you, you, you do find, so we, we have a few lists of members, but not many. But apparently, um, they they were a lot, yes, of, um, of uh, priests of that church, and and then so then black Freemasonry spread in Pennsylvania. Uh, then the the third Prince Hall Grand Lodge was in New York, Maryland. That was 1845, and in 1848 you had another one in DC. Um, so you know, and um, little by little, uh, there were. Um, there, there were Prince Hall Grand Lodges in several states. Of, and of, today, by, sorry. No, go ahead. Go no, ahead. I mean, today, today, by the way, the, 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 the largest uh, Prince Hall Grand Lodge is to be found in Alabama. So this is not, you know, pure coincidence. That's interesting. This was a, yeah, the country of civil rights, and uh, and there in Alabama, they are still not recognized by the White Grand Lodge of that. <laughs> not surprising. Yeah, that's it. Um, so you see it. Um, 
Yes, what I haven't said also is that during the civil war, for instance, we know that some Masons um, supported what was called the Underground Railway uh, when some uh, black slaves tried to flee to the northern states. And um, at that point, there were some links between uh, those black Masons and um, uh, the, uh, the 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 Grand Lodge of Massachusetts uh, with the Prince Hall Grand Lodge of Massachusetts, right? And uh, they they helped them. So they helped them, uh, and also they were probably two. They were it's not probably they were two reg, uh, regiments, two um, which were black regiments uh, during the Civil War, and uh, also you know with um, um, with black Freemasons there. Something tells me, well, when you said that the largest Freemason uh, lodge is in Alabama, I'm not surprised about that, but something mm -hmm. tells me that one of the reasons why this, the, Freem the black Freemasonry surfaced also, you know, all this was happened before the, the abolition of slavery. And mm -hmm. could this have been a way to bring the educated people into the Freemason, Freemasonry so that they could actually foment, if you will, freedom and to, to convince the people to perhaps escape to the north and, and, and to essentially help with emancipation efforts. Mm -hmm. Well, there, it's, um, there were probably some individual initiatives like uh, Denmark Vizzi, for instance, Denmark Vizzi, who actually, uh, yes, he tried to organize a rebellion and he was a member of the African Lodge and he wrote in 1829 an appeal to the colored citizens of the world. And so, and this man also uh, was very active uh, writing for um, a journal, a freedom journal in Boston and uh, that was also linked to the African Lodge so you you find those initiatives um now i cannot say that you know the freemasons the black freemasons in general uh you know played an immense role in the south okay no there is no evidence of that but there were some initiatives like that um and denmark Vese is certainly a, an interesting case right and uh, actually peter hinks wrote a very good uh, book about uh, about him and about um, um, the, also the um, the first um, African uh, American um, Freemasons, and he, uh, he also wrote the introduction of my book. <laughs> oh, is that right? Well, was yeah. Black Freemasonry synonymous with anti-slavery beliefs? With sorry, was sorry, black 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 Freemasonry was it? Synonymous with anti-slavery beliefs. Oh yes, oh yes, definitely, definitely. Because as I said, you know, there were all these petitions sent by Prince Hall to the Assembly of Massachusetts against slavery, and um, oh yes, so they, I think they, they were active. Simply, you know, I mean. Um, it, uh, in those in those states where where slavery was uh, uh, was so strong, you cannot imagine that lodges, black lodges, could exist. So there were no black lodges in those southern states before the emancipation. Uh, you had some individual people who actually, I said, joined lodges, but lodges in the north, right? So really, the the, the black lodges developed. Uh, after the um, after 1865, essentially, but yes, of course, there, there was this very strong commitment of uh, Black Freemasons against slavery. Uh, perhaps uh, it, it was a movement, also. I mean, what a perfect place! It's a secret society that the whites have. Now you allow the blacks to have it, but at the same time, they can actually organize protest rebellions. Uh, to eradicate the last remnants of slavery, perhaps? Well, you know, quite honestly, I don't think they actually organized rebellions. Uh, but uh, 
well, I had this example, for instance, of um, and who was it? This, you know, actually, we, we can discuss the Eastern Star because there was a matron uh, at one point who actually, well, matron is a sort of grandmistress, if you like. Explain what, what the Eastern it? Star is and the matrons for, for the women who are listening to us. <laughs> well, the grand matron is uh, the equivalent of a grandmistress or grandmaster. And for a long time, she had to work uh, alongside a grand patron, right? Because there had to be men uh, meeting with them. Uh, but now, well, a lot of them tend to, to meet separately. But, well, as I said, usually uh, they do essentially charitable work. But you do find one of them uh, at the beginning of the century actually urging members to go and vote to promote a law against lynching because you still had lynching at the time. And um, that was something. So I'm trying to, to think of the exact date now. It was something like 1916 or something. And, uh, you know, so, of course, much after of course, the, uh, uh, the official um, abolition of slavery, but there was still lynching in some states. And so... They, uh, and and um, even though, of course, black people were enfranchised, a lot of them uh, did not bother to go and vote because they did not have that habit. And so she tried to urge them to go and vote, use their vote to fight this awful uh, lynching and to support this law against lynching. So there was this kind of uh, action, you know. Uh, at some point... Uh, we were talking about Du Bois too, and Du Bois in 1947 wrote an appeal to the world on behalf of the NAACP, which we mentioned, um, urging you know the United Nations to protect the black community. So there were individual initiatives, I would say, not. Uh, you know, because in Freemasonry, it's very difficult to find lodges or grand lodges taking positions, you know, like that. Well, because in Freemasonry, you're not supposed to discuss politics or religion, or um, but individual members can have initiatives. That's what I would say. So they didn't have the, 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 the force to unite because they respected people's differences, whether political, religious, and so on. Now, how did white Freemasons react to the black Freemasons movement? Um, you mean movement? You, well, you mean... I should have said movement, to, to black Freemasonry in general. Well, as I said... Uh, they they really, I mean, they, they considered that you could not, well, I mean, the argument, they had pretext, right? Uh, they said that Anderson had forbidden slaves to be Masons, okay, or freeborn slaves, as I said. Second, they said that you could only have one Grand Lodge per state. So, of course, since there was already a white Grand Lodge, how could you have a second Grand Lodge? Right. So that was the um, that was what they said. Um, well, of course, obviously, you had a lot of racist arguments and um, uh, even, you know, people who are so as well known as Albert Pike uh, uh, actually considered that free. You could not have uh, black and white Freemasons in the same lodges. That was impossible. You know, he said, uh, I, was, um, I was made a, 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 a mason in the white lodge. If I have to accept a black man in my lodge, I shall just leave Freemasonry. And then, uh, of course, he said, all right, but I'm ready to grant them um, a charter for the higher degrees. So later on, he actually uh, granted charters to black Freemasons, but as long as they worked on their own, right? So that was a bit ambiguous. But, I mean, the, the story is that indeed for, you know, over two centuries, you had segregation and you had uh, white Grand Lodges, uh, well, I mean, uh, making statements uh, according to which uh, well, Prince Hall Freemasons were irregular, clandestine, as they said. 
And and really, things change, of course, because there were some individual Masons like William Upton, who was a white Freemason. He was a grandmaster. He was in Washington, and he was absolutely shocked. Uh, he was absolutely shocked by this, and he tried to 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 make his brethren change. Uh, and he even said that he refused to have a Masonic funeral as long as black Freemasons were not recognized. Uh, so, and, and there was, um, uh, in New Jersey, there was also, there was a large, a white, um, the, the Grand Lodge of New Jersey accepted the Black Lodge. Um, so they were attempts, you know. But as I said, the first Grand Lodge to officially recognize uh, the principal Grand Lodge of the state was in Connecticut, and that was in, uh, as I said, uh, 1987. So that was really quite late. That was really quite late indeed. And uh, 1989, sorry, not even 1987. And today, out of the 51 Grand Lodges, because there is one Grand Lodge per state, out of the 51 uh, white Grand Lodges, well, uh, 42 have official links with the Prince Hall Grand Lodge of the state. But there are still nine Grand Lodges which refuse to have any relationship with uh, Prince Hall Grand Lodges. And, uh, well, among them, well, they're all in the, in the southern states. And, of course, well, maybe in my book you saw this, um, this map uh, of uh, the states where segregation uh, within Freemasonry still persists, and it's about the same as the, you know, the old map of um, the uh, pro-slavery uh, states. So today, well, you have, I mean, the list is precisely that one, Alabama, Arkansas, South Carolina, Florida, Georgia, Louisiana, Mississippi, Tennessee, and West Virginia. In those states, there is still segregation because uh, they, uh, there is no official relationship between the white Freemasons and the black Freemasons. Even as so of today, you're saying? Right. Sorry? As, as of today, there's still segregation within the two? Yeah. Okay. Today. Yeah. 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 Still the case today. So, you know, maybe things will evolve while they keep evolving, <laughs> because now there are only, only nine states out of 51. I'm looking at Albert Pike here. He was born in 1809, died in 1891. So obviously he lived before the abolition and after the abolition. But I found it interesting that he was born in Boston in the North, but he was a Confederate military officer in the South. And he and General Lee are the only two statues of Confederate military officers that we see in Washington, D.C. Now, what was his view when it comes to, to black Freemasonry, you're saying that he would have preferred not to, but what else do we know about him and, and black Freemasonry and his opinions? Well, we know that uh, he was absolutely against any recognition of uh, black Freemasonry as such in his time. Uh well, there are strong presumptions that he was a member of the Ku Klux Klan. So some people have denied it. But, uh, well, I mean, I found in uh, Joseph Walk's book that he was. Um, so, well, you know, he, he was, uh, as I said, he, he was only ready to grant a charter later on to the uh, higher degrees of Prince Hall. But he, I mean, he was adamant that there should not be any white and black Freemasons in the same lodge. He was adamant that there should be segregation. And that you, you and he, he was um, totally hostile to any uh, recognition, that's for sure. We're white. So I know he's still considered so with great respect by, uh, you know, some very respectable people in the uh, in the southern jurisdiction today. Indeed. Um, well, because it's true that he, he worked a lot for Freemasonry, for white Freemasonry. But, I mean, he lived in his time and he lived in racist America and he was a racist himself. There is no denying that. We're white. Freemasons considered racist, and I ask you because Nathan Bedford Forrest, one of the first members of the Ku Klux Klan, was received into Freemasonry. 
Absolutely. You see, it shows you that uh, in those days, it was not considered as um, uh, impossible to belong to the Ku Klux Klan and to Freemasonry. So, uh, but of course, it's it's a skeleton in the cupboard because uh, nobody likes to discuss this today. And especially a lot of Freemasons are really ashamed uh, of those links. But uh, those links, well, I think this is history. We cannot deny them. We cannot deny them. Nathan B. Forrest was, of course, a racist. He was uh, one of the founders of the Ku Klux Klan. And he was received as a white Freemason later. So, I mean, uh, white Freemasons knew what they were doing when they accepted him. So there's no denying that. Well, we, but, we, we have to take yeah. a one, one We have to separate both segments, so we have to take a one-on-only intermission. This is a great uh, conversation we're having. A lot of history that I was not aware of, even when you look... On the in the internet, uh, and you try to look for black Freemasonry. A lot of the information that comes comes from you. So not a lot of people have been scratching this surface or this information. And I'd like you yeah. to tell us why when we come back. How can people buy the book Black Freemasonry, Professor? <laughs> well, I think they can order it with that. Um, it's it's been published at Inner Tradition, um, right? And. Um, uh, so <laughs> I think it can be bought quite easily, um, but um, it's true that maybe <laughs> because I'm French, because I'm an academic, uh, I could speak freely, right? Even though I have a total respect for Freemasonry and uh, all right, uh, uh, I can tell you I'm a French Freemason myself, right? So I have full respect for Freemasonry, but um, this gave me the freedom to discuss and to try to write the history of black Freemasonry because I could have that distance and I've always had that distance as an academic. And when we come back, I'd like you to tell us what it, what it is to be a woman Freemason because I've never spoken with one. I've spoken to many men, but not women. So right, all of so this when we come back. <laughs> Folks, don't go anywhere. I'm here with Professor Cecile Ravallier, directly from the beautiful island of Martinique, and we'll be right back. This is Mel Fabregas, and you're listening to Veritas. Don't go anywhere. Thank you for listening to the first segment of this very important Veritas interview. If you enjoyed it and wish to listen to the rest, go to veritasradio.com, click on Members, or subscribe. Or tell someone else who will enjoy this and all our radio programs. If you are listening on YouTube, like, subscribe, and share it. Don't forget to visit the Veritas store, where you can purchase pure organic sulfur, earthing and grounding products, supplements, our USB drive with all our shows, gift certificates, rebounders, fulvic acid, full body vibration machines, and much more. Now, we'll take a short intermission, listen to some music, and I'll see you in the Veritas member section. Enjoy. Enjoy. 